Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about how reading works in the brain. Like, what happens when we use our eyes to look at words on a page? Well, reading isn't just about our eyes. In fact, what happens when people read with their fingers could change what we think we know about the science of how we read. Okay, so Marshall, do you know what it's called when you read with your fingers? (laughs) I guess getting a feel for the material. (laughs) I I suppose we're talking about Braille. (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm glad you got to that eventually. Because today on our show, we're going to learn about Braille and its invention from a writer who spent years learning to read it. And then we're going to hear from a neuroscientist about why Braille might be the key to understand how we all read. Ooh, history and science. I think this is a cue for some old-timey music, huh? I'm down. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. yet. Okay. Hold off on the old-timey music. (laughs) We're going to start with Andrew Leland. Andrew is a writer who loves to read, but is slowly losing his vision, and it made him curious about reading while blind. He wondered, Well, what does it mean now that I'm a blind reader? What is a blind reader, and who were the blind readers who came before me? Those are great questions, but I'm also wondering, like, as a sighted person or someone who has sight, what what does it mean to be blind? That is a great question, because being blind doesn't mean the same thing for everyone who identifies as blind or low vision. Very, very few blind people see nothing at all. So it's really only about like 10 or 15 percent of blind people who have no light perception. The rest see something. And there's a really wide range of what that something is. Like right now, I can see kind of like looking through a little toilet paper tube or paper towel tube. What I see in that little tube, I can see pretty well, but it's a fraction of what a normal person sees. Well, that's really interesting. So so blindness isn't just like your eyes are closed. It's different for everyone. Exactly. But it does mean the experience of reading is different. So Andrew began to look into the history of blind readers as he became one himself. And he found that for much of that history, there weren't many blind readers because there wasn't a good way for blind people to read. But that started to change 200 years ago in Paris. In the 18th century, in France, we saw the first ever schools for the blind in the world. That first school for the blind was called the School for Blind Youth. An early student at that school was a kid named Louis Braille. Oh, So this is the guy who uh, invented Braille, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's some foreshadowing here, for sure. (laughs) Louis Braille lost his sight in an accident when he was a little kid. His parents knew he was smart, so they worked hard and got him into the school for blind youth. And when he was there, there was a French inventor named Charles Barbier. Or if you don't speak French, Charles Barbier. Andrew's clearly very proud of that French accent. (laughs) (laughs) Barbier was visiting the school to share his invention. And so Barbier, Barbier, had come up with this system that he called écriture nocturne, or night writing. So it was like a kind of writing that you could read in the dark. But was Barbier blind himself? 
No, he wasn't. He just thought that he had made something that could be useful for blind people. So what was night writing like? It was a system of raised dots pushed up through paper with a pointy tool called an awl. Each letter was made from a different pattern of dots. How were the dots like a pattern? Well, there were 12 dots on two lines running parallel to each other. Each line was six dots long. And how the dots were raised or not raised told you what letter you were reading. And so he went to the blind school that was relatively new and he said, hey, what do you guys think of this? And they said, interesting, let's share it with the students. And they did? They did. And the students, including Louis Braille, said, Mon Dieu, this is wonderful, but... It's kind of annoying that you have to run your fingers up and down and back and forth because, like, you can't really read that quickly. It took the students a long time to feel around and make out which of the 12 dots were on each letter. And it made putting together whole words a really slow process. Probably too slow if you want to read, like, a 5,000-word text. Yeah. (laughs) And so the genius that Braille had was he said, what if we just cut down the number of dots? Braille cut the number of dots in half, from 12 to 6. He also added capital letters and punctuation. And then he shared this system with his fellow blind students, and they loved it. Braille's system was a big improvement over what the students had had before, raised letters, which was basically just taking regular print letters and raising them above the page so you could feel out the shape. It's kind of like if you have a fancy invitation or something. So I guess it's harder to feel out a letter than feeling out dots? Yes. The raised letter system made sense to sighted teachers because they could read it. But it didn't make sense to the blind readers because it took too long to read. But Braille's system of dots was a huge success at the School for the Blind, and a teacher there helped him share it with the rest of the world. And so there was a book published, and it was an embossed book where you could actually read it, and it was called The Procede, or The Process for Writing Words and Music in Plain Song with Raised Dots. That must have been like a revolution to go from feeling out a book letter by letter to moving your fingers quickly across dots and finally being able to read. So did Andrew say it was for music, too? Yes, Braille did both letters and musical notes. Wow. It took years, but Braille replaced raised letters as the main writing system for the blind. And it was a huge step for blind people living better lives. Louis Braille's invention meant that generations of blind people could now express themselves through writing and access information through reading. I do think that one human right that everybody deserves is to be a part of a conversation, to be a part of a culture, to have access to information. Information is so important. I mean, I guess that's like the whole idea of being able to read and write. Like, if you're literate, that means you can participate in society, which is how we live and work together. Yeah. And that's why learning how to read is so important. And for blind people, reading Braille is just as important as sighted people learning how to read print. 200 years after Braille's time, there are many more ways for blind and low-vision people to access information, with technology that turns writing into speech, for example. It's not quite the same as reading, though. So as a new blind reader, Andrew felt it was really important for him to read physical books. So he decided to learn to read Braille, and he found it was really hard. 
In the beginning, I thought, how am I ever gonna understand a word through my fingers? Like you can run your finger across a page of Braille and you might as well be running your fingers across the side of a stucco house, right? You're just like, well, there's a bunch of bumps, but those cannot be words. With lots of practice, Andrew began to recognize those bumps as letters and then words. I'm really slow, and I have friends who have been blind since they were little, and they read Braille like the lightning is striking across their fingers. They can just zap their fingers across the page, and they can read it, whereas I'm like, once upon a time. And I've been working at it for years now, and I'm still that slow. Yeah, I imagine it's kind of like learning a new language. So, like, you begin by slowly recognizing words, but you'll never really speak like you were a native. Yeah, Andrew said it's a bit like that. And now he makes a habit of reading Braille in bed, which is cool because he can read it without the light on. And he found himself doing something that really surprised him. I noticed that, like, as I go from one side of the page to the other, my head is turning like I'm watching a tennis match on the ceiling. Wait, so he's, like, got his head on the pillow and he's reading with his fingers, but his head is moving back and forth? Yeah, it's kind of like his head is tracking where his fingers are moving. And he says it's something he really can't control unless he intentionally tries to stop it. That's that's pretty weird and cool. And I think it's because my brain is like, there's some part of my brain that is like the reading, visual reading part of my brain that is being activated when I'm doing tactile reading. So tactile means your sense of touch, right? Yes. So Andrew thinks that there's some part of his brain that triggers the motion of reading with his eyes, even though he's not using them at all. Yeah, and Andrew's totally mystified by this. I was too. And it made me wonder, what's really going on in the brain when we read? And is it different if you're doing it by eyes or by touch? So I found a neuroscientist who could help us answer this question because he studies reading and Braille. And we'll meet him right after this break. So before the break, we heard about Andrew's bedtime Braille reading mystery. He found himself moving his head back and forth as if his eyes were moving across the page even though it was his fingers doing the moving. Like he was possessed by the spirit of literature. (laughs) Someone is grabbing hold of his head. (laughs) (laughs) The ghost of Louis Braille. Yeah. But I think there has to be a non-supernatural reason to this. So I called up a neuroscientist named Simon Fisher-Baum, and I asked him how, as a sighted person, he ended up studying reading without sight. And so can you tell me how you came specifically to study Braille? Yeah, so I had been interested in reading and writing for a long time. But I, like, you know, most people read through their eyes. And that's how I had really thought about it. That was until he met a professor who's an expert in Braille named Robert Engelbretson. He's blind. He's been blind his whole life. He's been a lifelong Braille reader. We'll be speaking with Robert in a future episode, but Simon told me that when they first met, they had a conversation about the difference between reading by sight and reading by touch. And it was a conversation that changed the way that Simon thought about reading. And I realized that even though I'd been doing it for a while and studying this for a while, 
I didn't know anything really about it. Really? Like he'd studied reading for a long time and knew nothing? (laughs) Well, he says that because there wasn't much known about the science of reading Braille. Most of the research was just focused on reading as a visual skill, something we do with our eyes. Or research involving blind readers would use them just as a comparison to sighted readers. Simon and Robert wanted to study Braille for Braille's sake. We got really excited about trying to put together our knowledge and our kind of experiences of the world to think about how we could start to ask scientific questions about how blind people read Braille. Like, why would someone's head move back and forth as they're reading with Braille? (laughs) Before we try to answer that specific question, we need to understand a bit about how reading works in the brain. And the first thing to know is that our brains aren't built for the purpose of reading. Once you learn how to read and write, your brain seems to be like it's set up to read and write. But it's not something that our brains evolved for. It's something that we kind of like learn as a cultural skill. What does he mean by a cultural skill? Well, he means it's something we learn to live and function in the culture that we've built together as humans, like, you know, in our towns, cities, and communities, and in the world. But reading and writing, like Braille system, are human inventions, and it's a skill to learn how to use them. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's something we've figured out how to do, like play tennis, rather than having evolved to do. (laughs) Exactly. But our brains obviously store the information we need to be able to read somewhere. Well, where do they store it? Point to your temple and like go right there. And on the underside, sort of towards the edge, there's this little bit of cortex that people have been arguing about for a long time, but it's called the visual word form area. So it's like somewhere around your ear. (laughs) To be more precise, it's just in front of the top part of your left ear. Ah. (laughs) And this visual word form area is named for the idea that words show up there in a way that you can see them in your mind. But this area has another nickname, too. Sometimes it gets called the brain's letterbox. I think I like the name letterbox better because it seems like you're picking the letters up off the page and like dropping them in a little slot in your head. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or they're kind of like blocks that you've like fished out of some (laughs) box. (laughs) They're just like bouncing around. (laughs) Yeah. But you have to like build those blocks by learning to read. And those blocks are built around the writing system you learn first. And if you learn how to read English, it responds to the Roman alphabet. The Roman alphabet being like the 26 letters we use in English, where like if we learned Chinese or something, it would be different. Exactly. If you learn how to read Hebrew, it responds to Hebrew letters or Arabic letters or Chinese letters. Quick question, though. What, what does it mean that this area of the brain responds to the letters? Like, how do they know that? Do they ask it? So... You put people in a huge magnet, and it's called a magnetic resonance imaging machine. That's like the main way that we do brain scans. Okay, so they get a magnet, and that's what tells us what's going on. (laughs) This is a magnet speaking. (laughs) Yeah, you just put the magnet on your brain, and it's like, oh, look, right here, something going on. No, it's a giant magnet you can read in, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) 
I guess, obviously. <laughs> so scientists have gotten people to read inside of these giant magnets, and it's shown that this little visual word form area seems to be getting used more than other parts of the brain, whether they're reading by sight or by touch. That same bit of cortex seems to be more active when you're reading Braille. Wait a second. So this area that scientists literally named as a place where letters form visually works when letters aren't even visual? What, what does that mean? There's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what that means. Like, we don't necessarily know if just because the same brain part is involved, if it's doing the same thing in people who are blind and people who are sighted. But there's at least some suggestion that there's this, like, little bit of cortex that is involved in written language, whether or not you're reading it by sight or reading it by touch. Okay, that's that's interesting about like little bits of cortex and whatnot, but what, what, what's he saying? <laughs> I know, it's a bit confusing. So I tried to describe to Simon what I thought he meant, just to check if I had it right. So it doesn't matter whether you're touching letters or whether you're looking at letters. It's going into the same letterbox, the same bit of brain. That's what at least some people, I mean, whatever, I'm just such a scientist. At least some people think that that's, uh, that's what's going on. Uh, scientists never going to say they're 100% certain about everything. Or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But wow, that totally makes sense. And it means that the visual word form area... It's probably not just visual. Exactly. For a long time, scientists have studied reading as a way that we get written information through our eyes. But Braille shows that there might be something even more important to know about reading that's not at all about seeing or sight. And Simon says that adds to the mystery of how reading works in the brain. Why is it that this thing seems to be here across people who come from lots of different backgrounds, have lots of different experiences. Why are we seeing it so consistently in exactly the same part of the brain? And the Braille work just pushes that even farther. He's still, like, not sure about what's happening in this part of the brain? Yeah, no one is. And that's why there's a lot of debate about it. There are some clues that the letterbox plays an important role in reading, no matter how we read. But scientists like Simon have only begun to ask questions about it. And there's so much more to discover by studying Braille. Well, and maybe we can rename the visual word form area to the brain word blocky box. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but what about how Andrew reads Braille at night with his head moving back and forth? Like, what can that tell us about why he does that? Well, there's been no specific studies on that yet. But researchers have found that if your brain's letterbox was built on a different writing system than Braille, you're going to have some struggles with it. It's really challenging to learn how to read Braille after you've learned how to read by sight. So Andrew's far from alone in being a slow but steady Braille reader. Absolutely, because even though Braille seems to use the same part of the brain, it's processed differently. There's research out there that suggests that Learning to read Braille is kind of like recognizing a texture. What? I, I don't get it. How can you read a texture? Well, think about it this way. People who read by sight fixate their eyes on a word and then process it into information to get the meaning of the word. 
But fluent Braille readers don't stop on each word. Like Andrew said, their fingers move like lightning across the page. But when we touch, putting your finger on something isn't, that's not how you get the information. The information comes from the movement itself. The sheer pattern that goes across your fingertips while you move is how you're getting information in. Huh, so maybe like how sighted readers learn how to recognize shapes as letters, blind readers learn to recognize certain patterns of dots as words. The blocks in their letterbox are, are formed through touch. It's possible. And I think this could help explain why Andrew reads Braille with his head moving back and forth in the darkness. His brain is shifting between its default, original setting of visual print reading and this new system of reading by touch. It's just trying to make the two systems work together in any way that it can. So his brain might be going like a little bit haywire. (laughs) Yeah. And while we might not have a full explanation about what's going on with Andrew's brain, it shows that even 200 years after its invention, Braille is still surprising us with something new. Well, thanks, Louis Braille, for inventing this cool cultural skill. Good job with the updated vocab. So I wondered what Louis Braille would think if he could see all that's been done and learned with his invention. Here's what Simon said. He might be like amazed that um, thinking happened in the brain. He might just be amazed that we could measure the brain at all. Well, so people in Braille's time didn't even know thoughts came from your head, huh? Yeah, they thought they learned things like by heart. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think I store information in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) The most important information is stored in your heart. But when I asked Andrew, he said he thought Braille would be excited to learn that you can now read almost any book you want in Braille. Oh, he would be dancing. I don't know what French dance he would have known, but I'll just make one up. He'd be dancing the flute, Jean La Bloop, because, man, would he, like, are you kidding me? I love that. Braille would... Break out with dance moves. <laughs> Everyone do the floop, jaune la bloop. You can just make it up. <laughs> Simon called reading and writing a cultural skill, which is something that humans have invented and something we have to learn how to do before our brains are set up to do it. Can you think of other cultural skills besides reading and writing? Think of things that you do every day as part of your routine. Are they cultural skills, or are they things we're actually evolved to do as humans? For example, when you get up in the morning, you definitely evolved to eat, but using a spoon might be cultural. (laughs) Discuss with your family and friends what activities you think humans evolved for, and what activities are actually cultural skills. Are there any that you're not sure about? Thanks today to Andrew Leland, writer and audio producer. Andrew has an excellent book called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. Full disclosure, Andrew is also an advisor on the National Science Foundation grant that supports this episode. Also thanks to Simon Fisherbaum, Associate Professor of Psychology at Rice University. Special thanks to Robert Engelbretson, also of Rice University. You can learn more about Braille on the bonus interview episode on our Patreon at patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. 
and we'll have more free resources about Braille and the science of reading available on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 2148711, engaging blind, visually impaired, and sighted students in STEM with storytelling through podcasts. Special thanks to the team who helped with this episode, Dr. Peter Walters and Dr. Carrie Sapalo, and the rest of the team at Independent Science. Also thanks to Dr. Kelly Reidinger and Dr. Martin Storksteek at Oregon State University's STEM Research Center and Dr. Timothy Spock at AUR. Sarah Robertson-Lentz edited the show and designed the episode art. Peter Walters is our editorial consultant for the series. Elliot Hajaj is our production assistant and Gary Calhoun-James engineered and mixed this episode. I'm Lindsay Patterson and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. All right, everybody, now that we've finished up that super fun episode, that only means one thing. It's time for our Patreon birthday shoutouts. We got a bunch of them today, so here we go. Chloe Olivia, be true to you. Stay curious. Always ask your questions. Keep making your hypotheses and testing them out because that's science. Mama and Papa love you and are so proud of who you are. Happy seventh birthday on October 13th. To Ulysses, Mama and Dad love you so much and are so glad that you love science. And I am too. Happy birthday on October 14th. To Florence, happy birthday on October 16th. Mom and Dad know you love science just like everyone else here and me. To Isaac, keep up your curiosity and passion for history and science forever, and happy birthday on October 19th. To Reed, mom and dad love you, and happy birthday on October 22nd. Happy birthday on October 23rd to Dana, mom and dad love you very much. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.